0: airlines confidential with ben baldanza and seth kaplan is produced in conjunction with mass media a google partner providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation massmedia.net sponsorship info for the airlines confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com a google search i just did for the term ben baldanza and worst turned up 3,900 hits. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work.
1: Ooh, that hurt Seth. He had a crazy idea to teach people about how airlines work at the Super Bowl halftime show, so pitched himself as S-Cap, but they went with JLo and Shakira anyway. He's Seth Kaplan here in Howe's Transportation Analyst.
0: Big mistake there by the NFL pushing back from the gate. This is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Watch the halftime show next year, Ben. That's all I'm saying, Okay, (laughs) We're going to talk about America's most exciting new startup airline in decades. Or is it?
1: We'll talk about whether American Airlines employees are getting too good of a deal in a new labor agreement. And we'll listen to a real passenger complaint and decide whether the airline is to blame or the passenger is just being a pain. That's in our finer <laughs> wine segment. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news.
0: Well, Ben, what if I invited you to invest in a startup airline that plans to use smallish narrow body aircraft from two different manufacturers to fly low fare nonstop routes where there's apparently so little demand that no other airline even wants to fly them?
1: Hmm. Well, that sounds kind of exciting, Seth, but I think I'll pass on that one.
0: Well, that's a good thing because this startup airline doesn't need your money or anybody else's. This airline is being launched by David Nealman. Ben, I don't know about you, but when I was in my 20s, I didn't manage to co-found an airline that was so successful that I later sold it for $130 million. Not all of our listeners would remember the name of that airline. It was called Morris Air. But I think everyone has heard of the buyer, a little airline down in Texas called Southwest Airlines. No, most of us didn't do that, but David Nealman did. And then he helped launch uh, WestJet up in Canada. He launched the reservation system now used by a lot of low cost carriers around the world, including Ben, your old airline spirit. And then he launched another airline everyone has heard of, JetBlue, uh, which, even though it's 20 years old, remains the newest, truly successful startup airline in America. Later, he launched Azul down in Brazil, which has become a reasonably large and successful airline in a tough market. And he's involved in what seems to be a rather successful turnaround of Portugal's legacy airline TAP. Now, this new U.S. airline, which had been called Moxie during much of its development, is going to be called Breeze. At first, it's going to use Embraer 195s. They're actually coming up from Brazil, from Azul down there. These have 118 seats on them. Breeze will get 28 of those. Later, the Airbus 220-300s that are previously ordered, uh, 60 of them, I think. Ben, I got to tell you, if I knew nothing about Breeze except its business plan, I'm with you. I probably wouldn't be too excited. If I knew nothing about Breeze except who's launching it and with a lot of capital, I'd be very excited. Help me reconcile this. Is there room in America for another airline and is Breeze that airline?
1: Well, Seth, you know, now that you tell me all that and I knew most of it, I'll just have to say that if you'd gone back in time and ever bet against David Nealman, you'd have lost a lot of money. Because while people might have been wary about Morris Air or wary about a competitor, Air Canada, or wondered whether JFK could ever be a domestic hub or anything like that, he proved successful at all of those. So given that... Um, I'd have to say maybe Breeze might work. The real issue here is gonna be just access to big airports is really tough But if you look at what was called the Moxie business plan, and may now be the Breeze business plan, looks like they're going to try to avoid most of the major airports and fly close to the major airports, like maybe Gary, Indiana, instead of Chicago O'Hare, or uh, close to Boston, but not actually in Boston. Providence or something. Providence, things like that, and close to New York, but not actually one of the big three New York airports, or things like that. So the real question will be is whether customers will drive to those airports, whether there'll be enough services at those airports, like rental cars, concessions, things like that, or in some cases, mass transportation to those places. But again, uh, it'd be a tough call to bet against David Nealman. It's just not obvious to me there's room for another airline in the US, but I might have thought that when JetBlue started or when Allegiant started too.
0: Yeah, I... You look at their what they're saying in terms of, and, and you mentioned Allegiant, by the way. I, that it was Brian Summers at Skift called this uh, an Allegiant clone, at least in terms of the the network breeze says it'll be a much nicer airline but uh, the idea being connecting markets connecting dots that aren't currently connected on a nonstop basis and my first thought is always that you know this idea that there are all these obvious opportunities that all the other airlines are missing you know i think there are a lot of other smart airlines in america that if a if if an opportunity is obvious enough uh, they can fly and i know these planes are a little smaller uh 118 seats, as I said, on the 195s right now. Assuming they keep that configuration, compared to let's say Southwest's smallest plane is what 145 seats, I think, on the uh, 737-700s. Uh, but you know, Southwest with 700 airplanes can can launch a new route at much lower risk than than a brand new airline. So, so again, I keep coming back to there, there are all kinds of things about this that that make me doubt it. But then there's that there's just that big fact, uh, and so I guess the question is. You know, what's that saying? A broken watch is right twice a day? This is almost the opposite, right? What would be the corollary, right? A watch that's right all the time. <laughs> is it—is <laughs> it, is it, is it ever wrong? Uh, it seems, seems tough for me. And I, and I guess the thing is, it is well capitalized enough that if they get a few basic things right, and even if they're wrong about a lot of the details, they'll have some staying power. And, that, and that's a big thing, right? Undercapitalized companies, probably the, the You would know better than I would, but probably the number one reason companies got a business is just they they, they just didn't have enough capital to start. And this is an airline that's going to have some staying power. It's not a question of, of hitting a home run right away.
1: I think that's right Seth. And you know other airlines have tried some of these kinds of airports. If you remember Frontier flew to Wilmington, Delaware for a little while yeah. and then they pulled out of that. They flew to Trenton and I they think they're going back by there it. by the
0: way. I think they're going back in with a few like a very infrequent service to Wilmington and yeah, Trenton they're still they're still there.
1: That's right. And um, another issue is You know, you got to make sure that if you go to like an Expedia or a place where a lot of people buy their tickets and you just type in the city that you're going to get the airport where Breeze is going to fly. Like it took a while, for example, for a little while when you typed in Phoenix, you didn't get flights to Mesa where Allegiant flies and Spirit started flying at first. Or if you put in Pittsburgh, you didn't initially get Latrobe. Now you get both Mesa and Latrobe if you're searching for Phoenix or Pittsburgh, respectively. But uh, as more and more cities, like if you, when there's service out of Gary, Indiana, if that's one of the places Breeze flies, if you just say, I want to go to Chicago, is Gary going to pop up? Will Expedia realize that's now an alternative and how long will that take and how long can you know Breeze hold out without that sort of support? And there's just all kinds of things. Again, will customers know about it? Will customers be able to get there? If uh, they're the only airline flying there and the flight's canceled, then you really don't have any other options. So there's a lot of issues with the idea of the business model. But if you look at their business plan, they do a very compelling case of showing how there's lots of demand and it's not all served by just the big airports and you got the right founder behind it and you got the right capital. So it'll be real interesting to see what happens here with Breeze for sure.
0: Interesting indeed. Well, meanwhile, unions representing American Airlines mechanics and fleet service workers are reaching out now to their members to encourage them to ratify new tentative agreements with the airline. Uh, You sure can't accuse either side of rushing into things. These workers have been without joint contracts since the merger of American Airlines and U.S. Airways way back in 2013. So how good a deal is it? Brett Snyder wrote in his popular Cranky Flyer blog, quote, it looks like a very rich contract. He said employees will, quote, benefit from cherry picking the best of other airline contracts. Fleet service will get Delta pay while mechanics will get Southwest pay. He says uh, what we don't know is what the company gains beyond just having this behind them. You might remember the airline accused employees of messing with the operation last year. Uh, so, So what about that, Ben? Is this a lopsided deal? Here's Transport Workers Union president. John Samuelson.
1: These contracts ensure that American Airlines, the consumer, and the investor retain a highly trained and talented workforce. We want a loyal workforce. We want a workforce that wants to actually produce for American Airlines. So this is a dividend for all stakeholders here. Also, the TWU set the bar again on protecting excellent middle-class jobs in our country.
0: He's talking there about what looks like a reversal in a long-term trend toward outsourcing more of this kind of work. Ben, you've been in the middle of these kinds of negotiations when you were running Spirit. What I want to ask you is... Is it a zero-sum game where the better a deal is for workers, the worse it generally is for an airline and maybe for consumers too if costs go up and get passed along to consumers? Or do the two sides sometimes care more about different issues and maybe have some kind of grand bargain where everyone ends up more or less happy with things?
1: Well, Seth, you certainly need happy employees to create good customer service. I worked at an airline once that had, at the time, the highest paid employees in the U.S., that was U.S. Airways, and we didn't have the best customer service, so those (laughs) things aren't necessarily correlated, high pay and good customer service. Also, I remember a few years ago, I was at a conference, it was in Washington, D.C., and Doug Parker, the CEO of American, was there, and one of the statements he made was that he wanted Americans' employees to have the highest pay in the industry. And I remember hearing that and looking to the people to my left and right, I don't remember who they were at the time, and, and, and saying, did, did he really just say that? Did he really say he wants to have the highest paid employees in the industry? And they said, yeah, that's what he said. So it looks like he's living up to that. <laughs> and, um, you know, at, at some point, you got to have a deal. And if you remember, Seth, Originally, America West and U.S. Airways merged, and then that airline merged with American. But U.S. Airways and America West never actually merged the companies in some of the pilot agreements. Some of the pilot agreements never actually merged until they merged with American. So these are long, long time deals coming. My guess is if you look at what they're going to be paid with this deal compared to when the original mergers happened, it doesn't look like a ridiculous you know, compound average growth rate in terms yeah. of the in terms of the pay. On the other hand, it looks like it is a big upgrade in pay for a lot of these. That's gonna mean just higher costs for American, which means they're gonna wanna pass higher fares on to customers, but they're not gonna really be able to because they can only do what Delton United and other airlines let them. So the real issue is are investors going to be hurt from this, uh, because of these higher wages, or has American just been you know, dealing with this all along and modeling it all along. And it'll just be, you know, just the next phase in labor pay in in the United States for airlines. And these are employees
0: who, who gave up a lot. Some of them have been around for a long time during the bad old days, uh, early part of this of this century. And, and airlines kind of said to them, hey, stick with us through this and we will make you whole eventually. And and now in in some respects, the, the bill is coming due. And American kind of back to something you were saying is really a case study in how it's not all about money. I mean, look, people aren't going to be happy if they're underpaid. But American, uh, sort of, to, to what you said about Doug Parker's statement there at that, that conference, American also gave big unilateral raises to its employees, a lot of the work groups anyway, a few years back, kind of thinking that maybe it was going to buy peace. And yet, you still had all this strife. Uh, you know, other airlines that seem to have better employee relations, in other cases, improve, improving employee relations. So I think that's an important lesson for American uh, that you know, even if these employees do ratify these these deals, which by all accounts. Seem, seem to be rather good uh, from, from their perspective that, uh, that that's not all it's going to take, that they still have to work on the other issues of trust and all the rest of it. That, that some of the other airlines, to varying degrees, uh, you know, there's no airline that has 100% happy employees, but to varying degrees, seem to have done uh, a, a better job of in, in recent years. Now, Ben, you happen to hold the dubious distinction of being the most recent CEO of a big passenger airline to take a strike back when Spirit's pilots walked off the job in 2010. But I guess the real point is that was a decade ago, right? Strikes don't happen very often in the U.S. Can you think of a time back at Spirit when you felt like you were far apart uh, with the union, but maybe it turned out the union cared a lot about something that wasn't too big of a sacrifice for the airline and and vice versa?
1: Well, you're right, Seth, about that distinction. And uh you know The the labor laws that affect airlines are different than most companies, uh, which make it harder to have strikes, but they are few and far between, that's for sure. Back at Spirit, when our pilot struck in 2010, we were a very small airline then, and the company's position was, look, we can't pay you like a big airline yet, because we're still really small, and we're we're making money and we're starting to make money now because our fares are so low and the only way we can keep our fares low is to keep our costs low. So we don't want that totally on your backs, but we need to sort of strike a balance between you know, the fact that we're this little airline. Ultimately, we reached agreement with those pilots. They're a great group of, of men and women flying the planes there. And then now they've had another deal since then where their pay is up again. And so I think what happens is that cloud sort of floats around the industry. Delta's done a nice job of renegotiating their deals before they even become amendable, yeah. which is a, a, a practice that Richard Anderson, when he was CEO, established. You know, Seth, if you read the book that was written a long time ago called "Hard Landings," there uh, was classic, actually a there was book. actually a reissue of it too. That's right. You can almost summarize that book by saying that what that book says is that airlines start to make money, then labor takes most of the money back. Then airlines make more money, and then the labor takes that back. And it's, it's sort of, that's kind of what that book is all about in a way. And I think we see that overall. But you know, US workers work hard, airline workers work hard, and pilot jobs take a long time to train for. Mechanic jobs take a long time to train for. And so the kind of deals that are being made under these collectively bargained agreements, it's not unexpected what's going to happen. And Americans a huge airline. They're not a little airline. They fly around the world. They charge high fares. So they don't have the kind of arguments to say if we can't pay our people best because we're trying to compete with these airlines that are much bigger or anything. They don't have those kind of arguments. So yeah, I
0: American as, as as a laggard among the big three, it's still a, a perfectly sustainable company. And that's maybe a difference now from back in the hard landing days, right? It's been a lot of years now that most of these U.S. airlines, even though some are better off than others, are all sustainable companies. You, you know, th- this labor deal is not going to sink American Airlines, uh, even if the
1: company wishes it didn't have to pay as
0: much as, as, as it's paying. And that's different from the situation at times in the past where these airlines really were at times teetering in the brink.
1: Well and it sounds crazy Seth but if you're if you're American United or Delta you almost know that well if I pay my employees a little more now I may live with that uncomfortable difference in pay for a couple of years but when their next deals done we're going to become the benchmark and yeah. they're going to match or beat us so it's not going to last that long and those airlines sort of get that so american knows they're not going to live for the next 10 years with a labor cost disadvantage versus delta and united they say what goes around comes around and we're just setting the next trend and that trend's going to get reset it's just like yeah. you know baseball players or football players yeah the next deal is always the richest deal that's ever happened, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's what matters is the competitive set. You don't have to have the lowest cost in the world. It doesn't matter what you know AirAsia is paying. <laughs> it's employed. They they, tend, they claim to have some of the, uh, the the lowest unit costs in the world. That's why I picked them, but that's not what's relevant for, for American Airlines. What's relevant is what Dalton United are paying. And, and as you said, uh, every reason to think that those airlines will uh, eventually pay what, what uh, uh, American is paying. In the cases here where American will, will end up paying more. Well, uh, now at Cruise altitude here on airlines confidential we'll talk about whether different kinds of airplanes at one airline mean more profits or just more headaches plus why i not ben should handle all the yiddish words on the show (laughs) it's that and then a complaint during fine or wine more airlines confidential is next Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or fine is next. But first, let's go to the mailbag. Here's Kevin in Rockville, Maryland. Kevin writes Seth, you need to teach Ben how to say fetch. Now, Kevin wrote that just to me, but I guess now I just shared it with the world. Ben, he's talking about, we, it was at the top of the show, I think it was last episode, right? Uh, where we were talking about people fetching during fine or wine. Now, this was totally unfair of me. I wrote that line and I stuck you with it. That would be like you telling me to go make Italian meatballs without any instruction, right? I mean... <laughs>
1: That's right. We Eastern, know- these
0: Eastern European words with 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 all these consonants. You know that, that's a Yiddish word, and it, 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 I think a lot of our listeners know. But for anybody who doesn't, it means to complain. But there's just something about the onomatopoeia of crutch that right that like you know complain doesn't just doesn't quite do. And every and every Jewish kid was told many times to stop crutching, You know <laughs> even even if you you know you don't speak for fluent. Giddish, it's one of those words that crosses over into English.
1: Well, and it crosses over in in ethnicities too, because I grew up in an Italian Catholic family, but we used to say that word too. <laughs> 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 and so I I, um, I saw that note, and I immediately felt, uh, oh man, did I really mess it up too bad? Not so I at all. YouTube Seth, and I wrote in how to pronounce Ghetto, and. On four different videos, I heard four different. Some that completely swallowed the K, just vetch, vetch. Others that really strong K, kvetch, kvetch. And more the, the ones that seemed more right to me were the ones that sort of the vetch that sort of thing or something. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'm just a schmuck. What do I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, next, Ben, here's Tom
0: in Bloomington, Indiana. Tom writes... I am currently a senior in college and had the fortunate opportunity to intern for two different airlines a low-cost carrier with one fleet type and a legacy carrier with a diverse fleet portfolio At the low-cost airline, I was indoctrinated to believe that any complexity in a fleet was bad. Capital letters. But after working at the legacy airline, they showed me the beauty of a diverse fleet, mainly how different-sized aircraft, when utilized correctly, can better serve hub-to-hub, leisure markets, long-haul international destinations, and high-demand and capacity-restricted markets. So what gives? Who's right? You talked about economies of scale to reach diminishing marginal returns on owning an additional aircraft type with about 100 aircraft. Uh, Wouldn't a carrier like Southwest or Spirit then benefit from some fleet diversification to reach new segments or international destinations and possibly negotiate better aircraft purchases since they can shop the whole market? Love the show. I'm super jealous of all the George Mason students that have the opportunity to learn from an airline industry legend like yourself, Ben. Seth. I've been a subscriber of your previous work for a few years and appreciate all the wisdom you've provided to me. Looking forward to seeing Airlines Confidential on other media platforms in the future. Wow, Tom, thank you so much. Okay, a few things. Uh, First of all, Tom is is a student in Bloomington, Indiana. I assume he goes to Indiana University at Bloomington. Ben, have you ever been to Bloomington, Indiana?
1: I have been there, yes. Great town. It's a beautiful I, time. I, yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I spent a couple of weeks there in high school, actually, at the High School Journalism Institute at, at Indiana University in the summer of 1991. And, and it was really just one of the great, uh, great summers of my life. So uh, there's that uh, second Tom, Don't be too jealous of those George Mason students, because last week, guess who spoke in Ben's class? I did. <laughs> now he'll make it up to them. They'll have some actual luminaries in the industry speaking about various things throughout the semester. It's a great class, uh, except the week that I show up each semester. But uh, but uh, but uh, no, it, it it actually is uh, absolutely fantastic. I I, uh, I agree with you. Third, wow, what an opportunity! You're, you're in college and you've gotten to intern at two different carriers like that, and all kinds of exposure. You're going to have a uh, great career in this industry, Tom. So fourth, Ben. Yeah, uh, help help Tom uh, reconcile that. He's he's been he's is, is one of these airlines right, the other one wrong.
1: Well, you know, one of my favorite restaurants in Fort Lauderdale Seth, was a place called Anthony's Coal Fired Pizza. Yeah, there's a lot of them, and one of the beauties of that place is not only is the food great, but it's a very limited menu. They basically have pizza, wings, and salad, and that's pretty much it. And I talked to Anthony Bruno, the owner, and he says, you know, you just keep it simple and it works. And then you walk across the street or down the road and you go to a place like Cheesecake Factory and they've got this magazine for a, for a menu, right? With every possible <laughs> thing you can eat of every possible type of food. And so it's different things for different people, I guess. If you want to be a low-cost airline, having one fleet type does a lot to save money. You train your pilots once, you have one set of mechanics, you have one set of extra parts. Um, Everything is just easier that way. What that does is it limits you. You can't fly to... Places farther than that one airplane can fly, you may not be able to serve some cities for which that airplane is too large, right? So so it just certainly limits you. You go to – I mean, Southwest has become a huge airline with basically one size airplane or – a range within a very narrow range 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 of sizes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then you look at an American or a United, my guess is uh, maybe he was intern at United because he's close to there, but maybe I'm just assuming that. But um, And you realize they can serve a lot more markets, Like They can serve a little tiny market, like they can fly into Bloomington, Indiana, right? And they can also go to Tokyo, right? And Beijing and places. So you need different airplane types. If you're going to be an airline that wants to be closer to everything, to everyone, you want to be a Cheesecake Factory airline, right? Then have multiple airplanes, but just have enough of each that you can have some economy of scale, that you can control how many times you're going to have to train your crews over the life of that they're with you. Um, how do you try to keep at least maybe a station clean, meaning maybe in Bloomington, only one size airplane serves Bloomington and only one size serves Tokyo. But at a hub like Chicago, you're going to see Noah's Ark, right? Two of everything. <laughs> right. and, um, um, but for a low cost airline, you not only give up places you can fly because either your plane's too big or it can't reach, but you also then sort of become beholden to the manufacturer. And you, you always wonder, am I really getting the best deal from Boeing if all I buy is Boeing? Or from Airbus if all I buy is Airbus? And certainly bigger airlines have been able to play that off. And you can see that at the last big order, American Airlines place, for example, they bought a bunch of Boeing airplanes and a bunch of Airbus airplanes. And my guess is they got a better price than they would have got from either company if that's the only plane they were buying. So I think that um, Tom, it's great that he interned at two different airlines, saw different two different approaches to fleet planning. It's impossible to say one's right and one's wrong. It's really what kind of an airline are you trying to be?
0: And after all that talk about Anthony's Coal-Fired Pizza and Cheesecake Factory, I'm getting hungry. Uh, my other <laughs> thought is that we keep mentioning all these companies that don't spend a dime sponsoring this show, right? So, uh, so uh, <laughs> what's going on? And, and I guess another way to put more seriously what, what you just said, Ben, is, uh, you know, You always have cost and revenue trade-offs with everything that you do as an airline, right? And, And most things that you do as an airline push both of those in the same direction, right? Most things that you do are either accepting a cost and complexity that might drive more revenue or driving down costs but accepting the fact that your revenues are probably going to be lower. Your unit revenues are probably going to be lower. And the answer is just different for different kinds of airlines, right? It, it's, it's like, I mean, an obvious example would be, you know, having a business class product, right? Costs a lot of money to have and then you get paid more for it, right? And if, if Spirit had a lie flat business class seat, it would get paid more for that than it gets paid for its other seats. But the cost and complexity of doing that for Spirit or Ryanair or whoever, it just, just would never pay off. Whereas it is the right decision for Delta and Lufthansa and, and Singapore Airlines and, and all the other airlines around the world that have it, and so so that that's just always the trade-off with everything, right? You put more seats on the airplane, you're driving down your unit cost because you have more seats, but maybe people won't like seeing a plane with quite as many seats, and maybe the fares will be a little lower. Those kinds of things, always that trade-off, and and, and just the question of. Whether when you cut costs, you're going to cut revenue by even more than you cut costs, which would be a bad thing, or, or vice versa. You, know, you accept the cost, and, and, and you know, when you accept that cost, you better have the revenue to show for it. And having different fleet types uh, is costly, but it, it certainly does pay off for different kinds of airlines. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website and you'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just. Whining, fetching, quejándose, however you
1: (laughs) pick your language. Ben, you
0: have a complaint.
1: Yes, I do, Seth. This one is from Brian of San Jose, California. And Brian writes, when my mom traveled back home to Oahu, Hawaii on Hawaiian Airlines, I confirmed with the ticket agent that she needs wheelchair service. The agent said, don't worry, you're already booked for handicapped wheelchair service from airplane to curbside. When she landed, my mom waited 30 minutes for wheelchair service. No one came to get her. She had to walk to Terminal 1 baggage claim about a mile walk in pain.
0: Oh, man, Ben. Fine or whine?
1: Oh, that's clearly very, very fine a complaint. That's not a whine at all. And let's talk about this a bit, Seth. Almost every airline I know outsources this service, meaning that the company that actually brings the wheelchair doesn't work for the airline itself, but works for a company that handles wheelchairs. And that's often more efficient at an airport because they have one set of wheelchairs and on this flight, they can use them on the Delta flight arriving and then put it on the, uh, you know, the frontier flight that arrives two hours later. Sure. But- When it comes to outsourcing, and this is not just true in airlines, it's true everywhere, you can outsource operations, but you can never outsource responsibility. And the responsibility for having the wheelchair in the right place and for making sure the customer doesn't do what this... uh, what Brian's mom had to do, is that responsibility is with the airline. So I think he has a very legitimate complaint against Hawaiian, Hawaiian will certainly want to go back to their provider of that service and talk to them about why did that happen, and probably manages them anyway against certain service parameters and how often does something like this happen and how often, how long does it normally take the wheelchair to get there. I'm sure Hawaiian is embarrassed by this. But I can't imagine a finer complaint than this one, Seth.
0: Yeah, that, one, that one's pretty, pretty clear cut. Not a lot of gray area there. Well, on final approach now, Ben, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or you could jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan.
1: And I'm the appropriately Yiddish-shamed Ben Baldanza. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential
0: with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the
1: Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com.